Let's go year by year, the 1980s, and let's start at the beginning. Our conversation with Mike Dynan of Red's Army continues now, the 1980s on the Tuesday Locked On Celtics. Millies, let's go! Rainy days back with the vengeance back. All the real Celtics fans in attendance. This is the truth like 34. It's like walking in the garden when you hear the roars. Crowd goes crazy, most in-depth coverage on the daily, mainly podcast royalty, the content kings. When you talk about the franchise with 17 rings, focus like Danny at the deadline. Global with it got a local feel like the red line, the blue line, the green line. Play it in between time. I'ma throw my C's jersey on in the meantime and press play. When the F's done, I can't wait until the next day. Trying to stay in tune with the C's, that's the best way. Melly. Happy Tuesday, everybody. John Corrales here from MassLive.com saying thank you once again for making the Lockdown Celtics podcast part of your daily routine and for making the Lockdown Celtics podcast the number one Boston Celtics podcast in the entire world. Number one, baby. Yeah. It's all because of your ratings. It's all because of your reviews. It's all because of you sharing the podcast and making it what it is. So I really do want to thank you. I joke and, you know, a little bit of bragging, a little bit of fun. But I'm excited that the podcast is doing well and that so many people enjoy it that it's at the top of the rankings as far as Celtics podcasts. It's one of the top team-specific podcasts. Uh, I think there might be like only one or two team-specific podcasts in, in all of basketball that uh, are ranked higher than Locked On Celtics. And Locked On Celtics consistently in the top 20 to 25 of all NBA podcasts. So that is just a huge honor, and as much as I like to kind of push it out there and brag about it a little bit, it really is only because you guys have made it so, and and I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Today, we're going to get back to the types of conversations that Mike Dynan of Red's Army and I have had throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. The 80s are such a phenomenal and pivotal decade that we're spending a lot of time on it. So obviously last week, Danny Ainge, parts one and two, Tommy Heinsohn, parts one and two, Robert Parrish, all of that was last week. This week, Monday, a setting of the racial element to the 1980s, a conversation that is rarely had about 80s basketball, and that was a really good conversation uh, Monday with, my, with uh, Dart Adams, who you should follow, Dart underscore Adams, and who is uh, extraordinarily knowledgeable and, and a Boston historian in his, in his own right. Today, we continue the conversation, Mike and I. And as usual, Mike and I had this long conversation that I chop up into pieces for the rest of the week. And usually, Mike and I talk for an hour and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit less, hour 20, hour 40, and I, I chop it up into four podcasts for that the for that week. This conversation about the 1980s lasted three hours. Three hours. We sat here and spoke over Skype for three hours. So that tells you how hugely influential this entire decade is. So much happens, and so much happens that we kind of gloss over some things. 
we don't even get into some of the deeper conversations that you can have about the 1980s, which I hope last week kind of fills in. And so the, the three hours, it's going to extend beyond this week. I'm going to give it to you in little half hour or so increments, and it's probably going to extend into next week. So the 1980s are going to take up more than two weeks of the podcast. That, that tells you exactly how, how much happened in the 1980s. And again, to sum up, basketball in the 70s, the viewership, the, it, it's, all, it's all struggling. There's, there's a lot that goes into the NBA uh, really falling down a few pegs and, and really in danger of, I don't want to say folding or anything like that, but really struggling to a point where you don't know what viability the league has in that current form. And then along comes Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and the league changes. We talked about it on Monday. The, the league is marketing Boston versus LA. They're, they're marketing lunch pail versus showtime. They're marketing in a lot of ways, black versus white. And all of these marketing elements come together to bring the league into a new level of popularity. And in the middle of it in 1984, Michael Jordan bursts onto the scene and has this kind of emergence. And in the eighties, Jordan becomes one of the dominant players, the dominant player in the NBA bird dominates the middle of the eighties. And then Jordan takes over kind of from there as the league's best player. And right there, magic bird, Jordan, those guys, Lakers Celtics rivalry really becoming something. The, the bulls dynasty getting ready to begin the Pistons in the middle of it. At the end of the decade, like the Pistons setting up the Bulls dynasty is like right in the 90s at the end, but it's building up in the 80s. All of these things are happening in the same decade. It's wild. So here's the first couple of years. This podcast really only covers 80, 81, which includes a Boston Celtics championship. So we begin at the beginning of the 1980s with me. John Corrales of Mass Live and Mike Dynan of RedsArmy.com. Mike, welcome back. Been a little while, but uh, good to yes. have you back here. How you feeling? Hey, John. Good. Good. Thank you. Good. Still healthy, I think. So far, so good. That's good. So far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> so we're here. We're in the 1980s now. This is, you know, it's such a big decade that I'm doing two weeks on the 80s. Uh, so. We'll start at the beginning of the 1980s. Larry Bird has now arrived. 1979-80 is his first season. And he comes in and immediately just takes over. He is he becomes Rookie of the Year. Uh, and and it, it sticks out to me that the Lakers win the championship and – as they're as they're on in the process of winning the championship, Magic finds out that Larry is the rookie of the year, um, and it pisses him off. And this is this is now the seed was planted for this rivalry in college, but having these guys, 
like having that situation there, I think really helped it grow very quickly. Yeah, that was pretty wild time for Celtics fans. We knew when Magic and Larry played each other and their teams played each other in the NCAA final, we had a reason to root for Larry already because he was a Celtics draftee a year ahead. As we remember uh, that he was subject to the uh, draft before he used up his eligibility. So we watched Larry play Magic in that final NCAA and Magic prevailed. So Larry had to get back at him then. I guess winning rookie of the year was the first opportunity he had. And uh, it set the tone for quite a decade. Yeah, quite a decade indeed. Uh, this is really the beginnings of the Celtics-Lakers rivalry, which we've talked about. That the 1960s, the Celtics played the Lakers a lot, and I think we retrospectively say that that was, hey, look, it was Celtics-Lakers all the time back then. But the the Celtics-Lakers rivalry begins in earnest this decade. And now Larry Bird starts off, he doesn't win a championship. Magic Johnson does right away. But Larry Bird leads at the time the greatest turnaround in NBA history. The 78-79 Celtics went 29-53. and 53. The 79-80 Celtics went 61-21 and 21, uh, behind Bill Fitch, behind Larry Bird, and behind a roster that did not yet include the big three, that was a roster with Tiny Archibald. Uh, they had Pete Maravich on that team. Cedric Maxwell was obviously the big uh, their their main guy until Larry came in. Uh, Gerald Henderson was a rookie that year. Chris Ford, Cowens was still on the team, uh, though not for long. Uh, so that that was and your boy Don Chaney. Uh, that, that was the beginnings of Larry Bird's kind of emergence. And he just bursts onto the scene. He did. I mean, it was obvious from the beginning, um, uh, his very first game, I went to that game and, uh, you didn't uh, know really how good Larry was going to be at that time. Uh, he scored 14 that night, played well, didn't stand out, didn't, uh, really have a big role in anything. Um, but I remember the second game, they were at Cleveland and the game was on TV and there was a play where there was an outlet pass to Bird and he was sort of around midcourt and in one motion, he just sort of volleyballed it with both hands back over his head to a man who was cutting for a layup and you know, my eyes got wide. I said, <laughs> whoa, that is not your ordinary play. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then after that, he, uh, you know, he just built on that. And he, it was very apparent very soon that he was going to be a special guy. are Locked On Celtics, your daily Boston Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. That Celtics team ends up losing to the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, 
and that the rivalry to hear these guys talk about uh, back then. Again, we're not at Celtics Lakers yet. That doesn't happen for four more years. Uh, the Celtics Sixers at this point is a much bigger rivalry, and the Celtics losing to the Sixers uh, in the in the conference finals that stings, that sucks, and that that's that's something that really um, that's a much bigger deal at this point in Celtics history than whatever's happening with the Lakers. Yeah, the, as you said, the Lakers. Um had been dominated by the Celtics in the finals. So you really couldn't say that there was uh, a rivalry at that point. With uh, Philadelphia, the various Philadelphia teams they had over the years, the Warriors and then uh, the 76ers, they um, had played the Celtics many more times than the Lakers in the playoffs. And uh, there were a lot of memorable moments. Havlicek stole the ball and... uh, Wilt um, and the Lakers, uh, excuse me, uh, Wilt and the Sixers blowing a 3-1 lead to Bill Russell and the Celtics in 1968 after they thought the Celtics were dead. So, yeah, there was a lot more happening between the Celtics and the Sixers during that period of time. In 1980, Philly was, they were more experienced, they were deeper. They had, uh, I think, a size advantage over the Celtics that year. Uh, Philly, the Celtics won 61 games, as I think you mentioned, which was 32 games better than they had the year before. And it was a remarkable turnaround, but that was regular season. Playoffs, a different story. And the Celtics swept the Rockets in the first round that year, and the NBA's geography, geography, uh, challenged way. They had the Rockets in the East. Um, so the, the uh, Philly was just too good for them at that point. The Celtics against Philly, they couldn't score. They uh, never broke 100 in that five-game series. And other than Bird and Cedric Maxwell, uh, they didn't have a whole lot of production on the offensive end. So well, they needed more size, and they got it. That, that changes a lot. 1980 brings in the help. So in a matter of a couple of seasons – the Celtics, they get Larry Bird for 79-80. In June of 1980, the Celtics trade Joe Barry Carroll and a pick to the Golden State Warriors for Robert Parrish and their first-round pick. So they swap first-round picks. The Warriors get Joe Barry Carroll, and the Celtics get Robert Parrish, and they use that pick to select Kevin McHale. Now, that is, in, in hindsight, one of the all-time – Fleecings. I will say that Joe Barry Carroll, who got the nickname Joe Barely Cares and, and all of that stuff, it's not like he had a terrible NBA career. The, Celt- the Celtics gave up a center for a center that Golden State, they, they just weren't feeling that, uh, that that relationship with Robert Parrish wasn't working out. He was not, he was not happy there. Uh, he describes that on the podcast. If you guys missed it, last Wednesday's podcast is the Robert Parrish podcast. But Joe Barry Carroll goes to the Golden State Warriors and averages his first year as a, a member of the Warriors, 
19 points, 9, nine rebounds, 17 points, 8 rebounds, 24 points, 9 rebounds. He wasn't terrible. It's not like the... It's not like the Roby trade, which is coming up for Dennis Johnson. The history says this is a fleecing because the Celtics got two Hall of Famers out of it, and Joe Barry Carroll only went to like one All Star game. But in the moment, Joe Barry Carroll was like, it wasn't like an immediate, oh crap, this this sucks. Um, giving up the pick that turned into McHale is is a, a much bigger deal in this, but. This is the trade that gets the big three, that establishes the big three. Yeah, there were a couple of things uh, underlying this trade that uh, make it even more of a steal. Um, for, well, for, first of all, let's talk about Joe Barry. Uh, yeah, like you said, he was good. But um, I think the Celtics in getting Parrish, they got more out of him by far. Parrish? was sort of underachieving in in uh, Golden State. I, I don't know what his numbers were, but, I mean, he never struck me as, like, an outstanding player. When he came to the Celtics, he became a Hall of Famer. Uh, so that is one part of it. The other thing, the way that the Celtics got those two first-round picks that they traded, they got those from Detroit in exchange for Bob McAdoo. They had traded for McAdoo, or actually John Y. Brown, the owner, did that without consulting Red Auerbach. So McAdoo was in Boston. He didn't really belong there. He didn't want to play there. The Celtics not only were able to get rid of him, but they were able to bring in the thing that changed the franchise future forever. And uh, so it was really Red at his best in that whole process. The numbers for Parrish in Golden State in four seasons, his best season was a 17 points, uh, 12 rebounds, three blocks, one and a half steals type. Uh, that, that was that one season in 1978-79. His overall Golden State averages through four years, 13.8 points, nine rebounds, uh, was it? Less than two blocks and three turnovers per game. Com- yeah, I could, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, go ahead. I'm just going to say, um, I remember specifically when he was when I got when I heard the news about that trade. I said, I thought he's okay. He's not that great. You know, I didn't expect a whole lot, but I was wrong. Well, you know, and it's interesting because Parish became this topic of conversation with Tommy Heinsohn, where Tommy was like, he was a good player, but he's not one of the 50 all-time, one of the 50 best players of all time. And I can see the argument. I can see the argument. It's hard to it's hard to go back and kind of adjust, but when you look at the list of the players, the, the, the 50 greatest players of all time when they did that, I think at that point it would have been hard to put Robert put put. Larry Bird and Kevin McHale on the team and not have Robert Parrish because by the end, they just became the big three. And it'd be hard to have two of the big three on that list. Yeah, they're a unit. They're together. They're the greatest front line of all time. I was a little surprised to hear Tommy say that. Uh, I don't disagree with him very often. 
I certainly have no, I'm not close to him in knowledge, but, uh, hey, Robert Parrish to me was one of the greats. Sure. Uh, and look, we can, we can talk a lot more about Parrish as, as this continues. He, he was a great player and nobody, nobody doubts that he was a great player. And you don't, you don't have a career like he had playing till 43 and playing more minutes than anybody's ever played in, in the NBA. You don't have that career without being good. You don't have that level of longevity without being useful. You know, the, the, in his next to last season, he was playing 15 minutes a game as a 42 year old for, and granted it was for Charlotte, but he was still playing 14, 15 minutes a game. Uh, after in his last season with Boston as a 40 year old, he was playing 27 minutes a game. The chief was physically gifted. He could run the, the, the Celtics were able to, once they got Parrish and McHale, they're able to get out and run. They weren't fast. They weren't certainly weren't a fast break team. They weren't going to play with Tommy Heinsohn level pace, but they could, they could move, they could pass, they could run when they needed to run. And I think what that trade gave them size, a lot of size, uh, a lot of scoring, uh, but also the ability to kind of play both half court and play full court. Uh, I, I think, I think when you look back at what those three were able to do together and for now, the next four or five years at this point, you got to throw Cedric Maxwell into this. And I don't want to discredit Cedric Maxwell because he always wants to, I think he and Tommy are, are very similar in that they both, their playing days are both kind of overlooked in Celtics history. No one talks about Tommy in these glowing terms. When you talk about Celtics history, you have to remind people that Tommy was a huge offensive threat and in a hall of fame player, Cedric Maxwell it feels like to me when you kind of take this 30,000 foot view of Celtics history that Maxwell's like this footnote, like the Celtics had this, the 70 Celtics with Tommy Heinsohn as the coach. They had a couple of years there where it was eh, Cedric Maxwell came along. Cedric Maxwell left. The big three took over, but Max was part of really, as he puts it, the big four. And he kind of wants to stress like, look, I was here. I was a finals MVP won two championships with with the Celtics uh he's a big part of this as well follow us on our social channels at LO Celtics on Twitter and at Lockdown Celtics on Instagram that's a good analogy between him and Tommy as to the impact of their careers and how they're viewed. The uh, With Max, yeah, he was a, the 81 MVP, and in 84, the Game 7, he had famously said, hop on my back, fellas, and uh, he did carry them that night, uh, high score in the game. Uh, he came through in the clutch. He was a necessary player really good player and he knew uh from the old days or his uh his first couple of seasons when the Celtics were terrible he knew uh how bad it could be if they didn't 
play the right way and have good uh, team players together. Uh, he, he had experienced the lows, so it was great that he got to have the highs as well. And it's kind of funny that Max Max did a lot. Max's career was was really good. Uh, he's not a Hall of Fame player. He's got the Finals MVP. Didn't make an All Star team, but at his peak, he was he was really the guy that the Celtics relied on, and he never missed. He he had a few of the Celtics uh, field goal percentage records for a while until Perk came along and just. He just get get fed for dunks, and his his field goal percentage was pretty high. But my favorite Max, um, excuse me, Max led the league twice in field goal percentage. Mm-hmm. He he had the inside game. He wasn't a face up shooter. Very seldom took a jump shot, and uh, but he was uh, outstanding at drawing fouls, and he was a good free throw shooter. Wanted to get to the line. And one of his strengths, too, was interior passing. He could always find somebody in the paint. Very effective at that. that that's a hallmark of the Celtics. And, and maybe why I love interior passing so much. The, the, these, these guys, and I'll also say this. Without floor spacing, we're talking about an era now where the three-pointer was, what, a year or two old? So they weren't they weren't sitting there going, oh, that's worth three points. Let's just jack up eight of these a game. Uh, (laughs) They were all still playing the old school style of basketball. Like, I love Danny Ainge's story last week about Fitch telling these guys, stop taking threes. And, you know, you're telling Larry Bird, don't take three-pointers. And and, Which sounds insane to me because nowadays it'd be like, hey, Larry, take 23s per game. Don't shoot anything else. Uh, because he's such a good shooter. But, you know, it's. I'm sorry. No, I, I was just gonna <laughs> say that that lack of that lack of floor spacing is it required you to be a good interior passer. If you weren't, then you couldn't you couldn't find anybody. Yeah, um, it's funny watching the replays that have been on NBC Sports Boston. Uh, some of the games from the '80s, in particular. Uh, I find myself seeing somebody catch a pass outside the arc and I'm expecting it, the shot to go up and then it doesn't. You know, they penetrate <laughs> and dish off. Uh, yeah, that was, it was amazing how packed the paint was all the time. I, I enjoyed watching basketball in those days and the fast breaking style. They would come up a lot of time. First guy came up, had the ball. He'd be up at 15, 18 feet. He let it fly. And, uh, attacking the basket, those were, that was a great era for basketball, in my, my opinion, uh, but entirely different than it is today. Not even, not even in the same universe. No, it is very, very different. Uh, so we have in this, and, and, and it's important to tell the story of Cedric Maxwell and the arrival of Larry Bird in all of this how Larry Bird earns Maxwell's kind of respect because Max is, is there uh, on the team already. The Celtics um, are now uh, they're, they're struggling, but Larry Bird comes in and Max sees this, this white kid from Indiana 
and he's like, all right, let's, well, let's, let's see what this kid is about. Um, Max is playing on a team that's, you know, predominantly black at that point. Um, and he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of the black players are looking at this kid and saying, all right, let's see what he has. And Max's story of challenging bird and bird hitting a shot in his face and Max going, Oh, all right. All right. Now I'm going to play you hard. And bird hits another shot in his face. And Max like, okay, okay. I'm done messing around. And bird hits another shot in his face. And Max is like, damn, this white boy can play. (laughs) Um, And from bird side, he was talking, I forget who the other players were, but it was like, yeah, by the time we got done with the first practice, two of those guys were gone and only Maxwell was left. And immediately, like, Bird comes in, and, and as I was talking about yesterday on the podcast with um, Dart Adams, like Bird, didn't, Bird didn't care about it, but he's just come out there to play. And if you want to challenge him, challenge him. That's all right. He's going to try to prove himself. Um, but immediately that hierarchy is set, that Bird, Bird pretty quickly – establishes himself as the number one guy. And now this trade comes along. Uh, everybody's everybody's playing really well. Everybody's getting along. And in 1981, the Celtics break through uh, and Larry Bird wins his first championship. Yeah, uh, that year was uh, when I bought season tickets. I, uh, yeah, that, you know, as we say for, all these things. It was another era. <laughs> these days, you want to go to a game when they're playing. You want to go to a game, doesn't matter where it is or when. You can go online and find tickets. Back then, you had to go to the box office. That was your only way. And you could walk up and get a ticket to a Celtic game, any game, pretty much. Even when they would sell out, they were still selling tickets the night of the game. You could just go up, put your money down get your ticket and go in. And uh, when they got really good again in the 80s, they uh, suddenly tickets weren't easy to come by. So I bought a half-season plan and used to share it with a couple of friends. And uh, I live about an hour and 15-minute drive from the garden. And I would go up there like once a month. But it was the only way you could get in. If you wanted to see the big three are the best starting five ever. Uh, you had to have a ticket plan. Uh, so that 1981 season, that's birds championship. <laughs> the, now we just talked about the previous year, 1980. They, they lost, no, they beat the rockets in the first round of the Eastern conference semifinals. The next year, they face the Houston Rockets again in the NBA Finals because they've realigned, and the Houston Rockets are now in the Western Conference, uh, and they've got Moses Malone, and you know that's that's not a that's a tough team that uh, the the Rockets had put together. Moses obviously was the star, but Max in that in that Finals, almost eighteen points, nine and a half rebounds. Larry Bird, fifteen point three points, fifteen point three rebounds in those finals. Kevin McHale doesn't really play much. I mean, he's a rookie uh, and he's just kind of, he's on the bench. He starts as a six man. They're just, he, he's not getting that full opportunity right away. Yeah. The Celtics 
one one big change they made that season was they added a lot of size. Uh, besides Parrish, getting Parrish in the trade and then drafting McHale, they also had Rick Roby. Uh, they got him from Indiana. They traded Billy Knight for Roby. That was the previous season. And Roby was like the third pick in the draft. He, he got traded out of Indiana really quick, but he was a big body, not skilled offensively, but he could bang. And so you had uh, the size now that they needed to match up with the likes of Philadelphia. And they had Tiny Archibald, who uh, had now was, I think, his third season after he had torn his Achilles. So he was in much better shape um, to be able to um, contribute. And he was a leader as well. They had Ford, Chris Ford, Henderson, Gerald Henderson. Mm-hmm. Parrish um, averaged 19 and 10 that year. He shot 54%. And McHale, as a rookie, 10 and 4 and shot 53%. And you had Maxwell, who was always between 55 and 60%. And Bird was like a 50% shooter. I mean, these guys were deadly. That um, One guy that keeps coming up that no one, no one talks about, uh, Terry Gerard, who... Bird and McHale always bring him up as a guy that gave them problems, like in practice. Um, he Terry Durad. Yeah, yeah. He was a like a folk hero. <laughs> Would come <laughs> off the bench. He was like uh, you know the eleventh or twelfth man, and he'd come off the bench, and he could make a three. And it wasn't common, as we said. Uh, you, you wouldn't see a lot of threes attempted even, but he could shoot them and he would make them. And so he became a fan favorite. And whenever he made a shot, the crowd would go, Doom! <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, okay. I'm glad, I'm glad we got him into the mix. So, okay. They win in 1981. Uh, Larry Bird gets his first title. Uh, We've got Max as the Finals MVP. We go into 1982, and the um, the Celtics lose in the playoffs in 1982 to the hated Philadelphia 76ers. What's notable in this is that in that loss to the Sixers, the Celtics, because Game 7 was in Boston, and that loss is the birth of the Beat L.A. chant. We're going to leave it right there. 1982, the Beat L.A. chant is born. Now, you can go Google it if you want, but this is going to be the starting point of the next podcast. 1982, the Boston Celtics facing the Philadelphia 76ers and a two-year window where the Celtics do not go to the finals. The Beat LA chant is born. The Sixers are really good. Like one of the best teams in NBA history good. And we'll pick it up from there tomorrow. So subscribe if you haven't. Uh, Again, this is going to be a long, deep, extensive conversation about the 1980s 
the most important decade in NBA history and in Boston Celtics history in a lot of ways as well. So subscribe if you haven't. Uh, if you have, please share the podcast, uh, write a good written review, and give it a five-star rating. All of that stuff really matters to keep the, the Lockdown Celtics podcast at the top of these rankings. Whenever advertisers come back to advertising, and, and frankly, they, they kind of haven't, and in this uncertain time, that's the first thing that goes. So advertising money kind of out the window right now. That's fine. Uh, I'd rather have these companies spending those advertising dollars on paying their employees if they can. Uh, Those advertising dollars will come back, and when they do, they're going to be looking for these top podcasts. And the more that you rate and review, the more, uh, more likely it is that they'll start to reinvest some of those advertising dollars, and that'll help me get paid for all of the work that I have been doing and we have been doing on the network here. So that's all I ask, just a little bit of help in that regard. And I also hope that you stay safe and healthy and that everyone around you does so as well. And that's that. Thanks for listening. Hope you've enjoyed this Lockdown Celtics podcast here on the Lockdown Podcast Network.